0: Good morning, I'm Danny Martin, I'm the pastor in residence here at Five Oaks Church, it's good to see all of you at our second Sunday service today and good to be seen by all of you watching us online this morning. Well it's my, excuse me, it's uh, as some of you know my third time preaching at our main services here at Five Oaks and Pastor Henry, he won't stop, (laughs) he won't stop trying to sabotage the new guy. You'll remember, some of you will remember, that the first time I spoke, he had me teach from a passage that was just a bunch of people's names. Remember that one? Just name after name after name. So I dodged that bullet, and he said, okay, let's try this. I want you to teach on the one thing that nobody wants to think about on the weekend, their jobs, work. So then I had to make you think about work on Sunday, and I dodged that bullet. Well, now he's fired the largest bullet of all, Today, he's asked me to explain to all of you why Jesus hasn't come back yet. (laughs) So let's see how it goes. (laughs) Well, as our regular attenders know, we've been teaching through the letter of 2 Peter in a series called Dying Words, which is about the dying words of a first-century Jewish man who we know as Peter, but who lived the first half of his life with a different name. Simon, son of Jonah, He lived in the town of Capernaum on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee in the Roman province of Judea, what we know as Israel, around the year 30 A.D. Like many other Jewish men in the region, Simon held a regular job as a fisherman. He spent his nights working alongside other fishermen, tossing large nets out of the sides of their boats and dragging in, hopefully, hundreds of pounds of fish on a good night to sell at market. Simon lived a noble, though not terribly noteworthy, life. And like many others from Simon's day and age, who shared his profession and upbringing, we should not know his name today. But we do, because of his encounter with Jesus of Nazareth. One day, after a bad night of fishing, Simon encountered Jesus of Nazareth while he was teaching on the Sea of Galilee. And we read this in Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 4. When he, that is Jesus, had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. And when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break And so they signaled for their partners in the other boats to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. You would think his reaction would be, Come closer. Let's go into business together. (laughs) But that's not what he says. He says, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Why? Because throughout the scripture, this is people's response when they encounter God. When the people of Israel hear God in Exodus 20, they say to Moses, You you can tell us what God said, but don't let him speak to us or we'll die. And Moses said to them, Don't be afraid. And when the Apostle John sees Jesus in his true form in Revelation 1, he writes, I fell at his feet as though dead. He passed out. And Jesus said to him, don't be afraid. When the prophet Isaiah sees God in Isaiah chapter 6, he says, I'm ruined. I'm done for. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Isaiah fears that God will consume him like a purifying fire. He is right to have this fear. Hebrews 12 tells us in no uncertain terms, our God is a consuming fire. The purpose of consuming or purifying fire is to use heat to separate purities from impurities, to get precious metals out of common stone. And Isaiah understands that he is nothing but impurities. If he's exposed to that fire, there won't be anything left. So an angel brings a hot coal from an altar to cleanse his mouth, to make him pure. And as the hot coal touches Isaiah's lips, the angel says, your guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for. Isaiah can then stand in the presence of God and not be consumed. He's been purified. And Simon is Jewish. He knows this story. And now he's witnessed Jesus perform a miracle, and he echoes Isaiah's words Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. He recognizes the same way that Isaiah recognized in the temple that he should be afraid. He is a sinful man who has found himself dangerously close to purifying fire. He's not worthy, he's not pure, he will be consumed. He realizes right away that Jesus is the fire. He doesn't yet realize that Jesus is also the coal. The story continues in verse 9, Luke chapter 4. For Simon and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. And then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, You will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up onto the shore, left it all behind, and followed him. Simon became a member of Jesus' inner circle and is often pictured as his most devoted follower. Jesus later gave him the nickname Kephas in Aramaic or Peter in Greek. Both mean rock. Simon the rock. He even promised that he would go to his death with Jesus. But as many of us know, when the moment of truth came, he fled. And not only did he flee, he denied three times that he even knew Jesus to save his own skin. And When Jesus was crucified, suffocating and bleeding to death, he was not surrounded by his closest apprentices, his apostles. At his death, Jesus was surrounded by faithful women. His mother, his aunt, his friend Mary Magdalene, James and John's mother, and others. The only apostle to witness Jesus' death was John, the author of the Gospel of John in our Bibles. And while this was happening, Simon Peter, the closest follower, was nowhere to be found. Simon Peter had once told Jesus, go away from me. But at Jesus' moment of greatest need, it was Simon Peter who went away. He didn't take Jesus' words to heart. Don't be afraid. Over 30 years later, the mad Roman Emperor Nero terrorized the city of Rome and started a great fire that destroyed two-thirds of the city. He wanted to build a great palace for himself, and he needed to clear some land. That's the truth. But the story told, was that those unpatriotic, disloyal, Rome-hating Christians were to blame. And at that time, Peter was in Rome. Church tradition holds that sometime shortly after the Great Fire, within about three months of it, Peter, during an outbreak of persecution against Christians, outstretched his arms, and he was crucified upside down, probably the year 64 AD. But before that happened... God preserved Simon Peter's life long enough for him to write this letter that we are reading from today. And what follows are some of his dying words. Our text today is 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. We'll begin with the first two verses. If you don't have a Bible with you to open there with us today, it should be one in the seat in front of you, just beneath it, a little shelf on the seat in front of you. The page you're looking for is 1,227. I'm going to be reading from the NIV translation. Follow along in whatever Bible translation you have. 2 Peter 3.1, Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior, Jesus, through your apostles. Let's pray. Almighty God, in you are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Open our eyes to see the wonders of your word and give us grace that we may clearly understand and freely choose the way of your wisdom. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Look back at verse 1. Simon Peter says, Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. Well, the second letter is 2 Peter, and surprise, surprise, the first letter is 1 Peter. Taken together, they are reminders. And this matters because... When we remember what God has done, we can endure the world. Second and first Peter are written for the same overarching purpose. They are reminders meant to stimulate the original audience toward wholesome thinking. And both letters are for the same people. First Peter one tells us who those people were. To God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Peter is writing to Christians in five Roman provinces in what is now the country of Turkey. And of all the provinces that Peter lists, all of them, except for Asia, had armies garrisoned there to help maintain order. This is very similar to the situation that was in Israel. That's why Pontius Pilate, the, arm, uh, the centurions, the soldiers, that's why all them were there. It was this sort of province. The Romans didn't trust the people's loyalty in these sorts of provinces. And so the military was ready to spring into action at a moment's notice. So this is the Roman government's posture toward most of these regions anyway. And now add this, from the Roman perspective, Christians were even more disloyal. Because they would not worship the Roman emperor. This was something good citizens were expected to do basically a loyalty oath, similar to how we view the Pledge of Allegiance. Christians wouldn't do it. And worse, Christians called Jesus Lord and Savior. This title was supposed to be only for the Roman emperor. Romans were not keen on sharing authority. They were keen on killing anybody who resisted their authority and making a point of it by crucifying them. Crucifixion was not a special form of execution. It was a brutal, though common way to make a power move against people. If you were a Roman citizen and sentenced to death for a crime, you were in almost all cases not allowed to be crucified. It was an execution reserved for non-citizens. For example, when the Apostle Paul died in Rome, around the same time as Peter, for about the same reason, Our best information tells us he was not crucified. He was beheaded because Paul was a Roman citizen. You have two references to Acts in your sermon application guide if you'd like to look into that. To be a Christian, at the time 2 Peter was written, was to be an outsider in a society that demanded obedience or else. Simon Peter calls the Christian audience of these letters strangers, exiles, and aliens. Their rights are diminished. They are viewed with suspicion. He tells them they are citizens of a different kingdom altogether. And until the kingdom comes in a flood of purifying fire, they and we must endure. So one of the key purposes of First and 2 Peter is to show us how we can live faithfully in a world, in this, in this world as non-citizen aliens while we wait for the true Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to return. I encourage you to read both of these letters back-to-back back in one sitting this week. It should take you less than one hour. Do it with your spouse, family, or small group. You will gain a much fuller picture of what Peter's last wishes for the church are, and it's a great discipline to develop reading a whole book of the Bible in one sitting. Now, Peter says that this reminder of his two letters is meant to stimulate us to wholesome thinking. And stimulate here, in my view, not the best word. Um, Not a strong enough English equivalent from the Greek. The word's meaning is less about stimulate. It's more saying, get up. It's It's not the mocha frappe, whatever thing you got after you're up gives you the buzz. It's the alarm that got you up in the first place. In Matthew one twenty four, jo- when Joseph wakes up, that's the same word. In John 6.18, when we read that the waters of the storming Sea of Galilee rose up, that's the word that is used for stimulate here. It's a word about waking up, storming, churning water. And in this context, it's a word about important information being activated and alive In our minds. We often call it the difference between head knowledge and heart knowledge. What you know versus what you believe. What you hear versus what you listen to. What you do versus what you practice. And what does he want to wake us up to? He calls it wholesome thinking. This too, bit of an unfortunate word. We hear the word wholesome it sounds like Peter wants us to think about baseball, apple pie in America. And while it's fair to describe the practical outworking of a Christian life as wholesome or sincere or having integrity, the Greek is illustrative here. Peter wants to wake up Christians so that we will have a sun-judged mind, S-U-N-judged mind. Peter wants us to have minds and, by extension, lifestyles, That can endure the scrutiny of direct sunlight. Years earlier, during Jesus' ministry, when Peter was still a young apprentice, Jesus took Peter, James, and John onto a mountain to show them his true identity. Matthew chapter 17 tells us Jesus was transfigured, he changed form before them. And the first detail it gives us in Matthew 17, too, is this. His face shone like the sun. In Revelation 1, John tells us the face of Jesus was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. And Revelation 21 tells us that when God redeems creation, his people will be gathered together in the new Jerusalem. And we read this important detail, Revelation 21, 23. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the lamb is its lamp. You'll remember that Jesus called himself the light of the world, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all and that the ultimate light source is not the sun but the one who said, let there be light. Everyone in the New Jerusalem will be able to endure the purifying, light-emanating presence of God, because everyone there will have been made holy. And holiness is not primarily a category of one's moral behavior, though moral behavior is a natural result of holiness. And that's what Peter is getting at here when he says that he wants us to have sun-judged minds. He wants to encourage behavior and thought patterns that reflect the reality of our new lives in Jesus but we must not confuse the result with the cause. This is extremely important, something I found a lot of people, even Christians, don't understand. Please listen to this. If you Google the word holy man, you will see a bunch of pictures of Hindu gurus. Skin and bones, gray-haired, faces painted, ankles tucked up behind their heads from all the years of practicing yoga, you know, otherworldly gaze looking at you like you, you don't know what they know. That's what Google will show you if you look for a holy man. You have to scroll down for a long time before Google would ever give you the idea that a holy man could be a Christian. These search results are a reflection of what our culture believes about holiness, which tells me that you all also have been exposed to the idea that to be holy, one must become a monk, nun, or guru. But holiness is not something we achieve by going to sit on a mountaintop in our underwear for decades. It is not. We do not achieve it by taking a vow of poverty or of celibacy or of anything else. We don't do things to become holy. We become holy to do things. Holiness in the Bible is a category that is bestowed upon us by God the Father, because of Jesus the Son, through God the Holy Spirit. It represents how God is essentially different from human beings and that in order to endure his presence like a really hot fire or a whole lot of sunlight, we must share in his holy essence. It is a change only God can affect and we gain access to it through faith in Jesus Christ. The simple Bible word for all of that is grace. Someone recently wrote, the sun can burn your eyes out from 94 million miles away. What makes you think that you can just walk into God's presence? This is getting at my point. Recall the hot coal that touched Isaiah's lips. That wasn't just some random hot coal out of the fire pit. The text tells us that the coal that purified Isaiah's lips came from the altar in God's throne room. The coal burned not with regular fire. It burned with the purifying fire of Almighty God. And it represented the transfer of God's perfect holiness into an unholy human being. It was a foretaste of what Jesus was coming to accomplish for all of us once and for all. So our son judged, or if you like the NIV here, wholesome, mindset and lifestyle is not the source of our relationship with God, but a result of it, demonstrating that Jesus Christ has touched our hearts like that purifying coal touched Isaiah's lips. This is why John the Baptist said he baptized with water, but that Jesus would baptize us with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And Toward this end, Peter tells us to remember the prophets and the apostles. He tells us in verse 2 of chapter 3 that I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Not only does Peter want us to remember the words of his two letters, he directs us toward the entire counsel of God. He tells us, don't forget what has been said. Don't forget what the prophets said, because not everything that they prophesied has yet come to pass. They told us Jesus was coming, and they were right. They also told us that God will judge the world on the day of the Lord, destroy evil, and put all things back to the way that they were supposed to be. Are we going to believe them about Jesus, but not about this? Jesus and his apostles left us guidelines on how to live until he comes again. And Peter, one of the most important among them, tells us to remember and to recall. It's the reason we have church together. To encourage one another to remember what God has done. At the end of this very service, everyone who's put their faith in Jesus Christ in this room for the forgiveness of their sins is going to take communion together. There's not much nutritional value in uh, half an ounce of grape juice in that little wafer. It's about remembering together what God has done. That's why we do it. And when a new Christian is baptized, it's absolutely for their benefit. If you haven't been baptized and you believe in Jesus, please do that. We're happy to help you with that. It's for that person. It's also for the benefit of our community. When we see that person coming up out of the water, we remember when we came up out of the water. We remember what God has done. When we have a baby or family dedication right up here, we all commit together, do we not, to help those parents raise their children in the Lord. We remind each other in these moments of public proclamation that the Christian life is not a solo mission. It is an invitation into a community that remembers together what God has done. God has been true to his word. We may question, but should not deny God regarding the things that to us still look like question marks. We must choose to remember what he has done for us. And If we do not remember, we will forget. And those who forget will not endure the judgment. The rest of our passage, verses 3 through 7, reads as follows. Above all, You must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They'll say, where is this coming, he promised, talking about Jesus. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Peter has said several times already, this is a reminder. I want you to recall. Things are hard, and if they're not hard, They're going to get hard. You're a first century Christian. You live in a world that thinks you're crazy under a government that executed Jesus. The psychotic Roman emperor just burned down two-thirds of his own capital city so he could expand his personal residence. And one of your community's most important leaders is about to be crucified upside down because he won't deny that Jesus died and came back to life. And in the midst of this, there are scoffers. What do they do? First, they come in the last days, which is not a reference to the last few days ever. This refers to the entire span of time between Jesus' ascension and second coming, the day of the Lord. And if that seems confusing to you, just pop your eyes down to verse 8 in 2 Peter 3. We read this. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So while it may seem strange to us for the phrase last days to refer to this whole epic of history, for God, it's not at all. And the scoffers aren't fans of God's timetable, they're like the people who say, I want patience, and I want it right now. (laughs) God's timetable is not our timetable. It never has been. He is, on the one hand, sovereignly overseeing all of history so that it leads to where he wills it. And at the same time, he has given human beings free will you ever try to get someone to choose of their own free will to do what you need them to do but they don't want to do it? Some of you are like, yeah, they're called my kids. (laughs) It's not going well. It's testing my patience. This is the predicament God is in. Peter isn't 100% clear on who the scoffers are. If they're the same false teachers discussed earlier in this letter, then their motives are the old classic sex and money. And they argue that because Jesus hasn't come back yet, he's probably not going to, so don't worry about it. If the scoffers are a broader category of people, including those Peter was dealing with, then the more substantial and more timeless issue is that they want to follow their own desires. Our translation supplies the word evil here in verse 3, but that's not actually in the Greek. It's just the word desire without specifying that the desires are intrinsically evil. This is worth mentioning, because morally neutral or even good desires can become bad desires when they are improperly oriented. Money is morally neutral. We all need it to pay our bills, to feed our families, to share with other people. And in that sense, it is correct for us to desire a given amount of money. The Bible does not say, as many people think, money is the root of all evil. It says in 1 Timothy 6, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. The question this raises then is, is money properly oriented in your heart? For the people Peter was dealing with, it was not. And thus, a morally neutral desire became a bad one. This is the question we all must always ask ourselves about our desires. Is this good or neutral thing becoming bad because of where it sits in my own heart? Peter tells us in verse 5 that the scoffers deliberately forget. They don't want to wait for the promised hope of Jesus' return. They don't like it because it has implications for what they can and can't do they prefer to bow to their ulterior motives, and in so doing, they jettison the idea that they will be held accountable. And if we have no need to look forward to Jesus' return, we have little need to look back at what he's done, and no need at all to look around at what we're doing. Denying Jesus' return is, in effect, an assault on the idea that we can believe God at all. To deny Jesus' return is to deny what he repeatedly said throughout his earthly ministry. It is a serious objection. It is one the apostles always refute every time. It's why John begins 1 John by saying that he saw and touched and heard Jesus. It's why earlier in this very letter, Peter tells us that he was an eyewitness of Jesus' majesty. He saw the transfiguration. It's why Paul says that if Jesus was not raised from the dead, Christians are to be pitied more than any other people. What are any of us doing here if that did not happen? But John's point is that he did touch Jesus. Peter's is that he did see Jesus transfigured. Paul's is that Jesus is raised from the dead. And if John touched him, and if Peter saw him glorified, and if Paul is right, he's coming again. And all of us are tempted to deliberately forget this, to confuse God's patience for those he wants to save for inaction. We are tempted to doubt that he will finish what he started. In the Old Testament, God is constantly telling Israel to remember. He tells them to put up stones of remembrance at points, physical markers that show where these big events happened and the prophet Zechariah's name even means Yahweh remembers God remembers. And as our lives stretch on and we contend with the reality that last days mean something that different than what we might think, all of us are at times tempted to willfully forget because we stop believing that it could be during our lifetime that Jesus returns. We have to balance the suddenness of his return with the responsibilities we have to the mission of God, the kingdom of God, and all the people around us who depend on us. But the answer to that quandary is not to scoff, not to deliberately forget. God is not lazy, he is patient. The scripture tells us that God loves everyone, that he doesn't want anyone to die, that he wants everyone to know Jesus and to be citizens of the new Jerusalem. It is big enough for everybody who has ever lived but that's not what's going to happen. In the story of Noah's Ark, the world was filled with violence and the people scoffed when judgment was coming. The Ark was big enough for a lot more than the eight people in it, but that's all that made it through the flood of water. And Peter tells us that a flood of purifying fire is coming. Verse 10 tells us, The earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Some translations read burned up, laid bare is better, though even that's a bit confusing. It means proven true, that which has endured. In Hebrew, the root meaning of the word we we translate as holy is set apart or separated, to make a distinction. If you want to get a precious metal out of its ore, you heat it until it melts. Then you are able to separate the regular old rock from the metal you're trying to refine. You let it cool, then you've got a pure precious metal set apart from the stone it came out of. It requires incredible heat to do this. And Peter tells us that the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire on the day of judgment. He says it'll come like a thief, which means suddenly when you're not ready for it. So remember to live always with a sun judged mentality. And if you're a follower of Jesus here, then his words to all those who have seen him in his glory are also for you in this. You don't have to be afraid. The judge is also the savior. There will be another in that fire. Though Peter believes Jesus is coming back, he also believes that he's not going to live to see it. But God has always been true to his word and so he tells us to remember. In John 21, the last chapter in the gospels, It tells us that sometime after God raised Jesus from the grave, but before he ascended into heaven, Jesus did a lot of things in that period of time, Simon Peter had ended up right back where he started, fishing the Sea of Galilee. Could you imagine, you walk with three, for three years with Jesus, you end up doing your old job afterward. (laughs) Simon Peter and the other apostles fished all night and surprise, surprise, they caught nothing. And Jesus stood on the shore and shouted to them to throw out their net for a catch. And they did. And the net was so full of fish, they couldn't pull it in. Sound familiar? After, the resurrected Jesus and his disciples ate fish together on the shore. And we read this, starting in verse 15 of John chapter 21. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Remember that Simon had denied him three times. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this, to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. The first time Peter proclaimed he was ready to die for Jesus, he fled. Over 30 years later, when he writes two letters to Jesus' followers spread across the Roman Empire, Simon Peter is now ready to die for Jesus Christ. Jesus told Simon Peter to feed my sheep. And in this letter, he is doing just that. We are those sheep. He warns us not to forget. He encourages us to remember and recall the words of his letters, the words of the scripture, and to trust in Jesus' return that we may live the lives God has called us into. These lives will endure the refiner's fire. They will shine clear when we inhabit the city where God will be. There will be no sun in that city. Its lamp will be Jesus himself. We remember as well Jesus's sacrifice for our sins in the celebration of of the Lord's supper. We observe it every week here at Five Oaks. In 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 23, the Apostle Paul writes this. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Thank you, Jesus. Let's eat it together. continues. In the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Thank you, Jesus. Let's drink it together. Father, we thank you for preserving Peter's words for us. We pray that we will remember. Help us not to forget your goodness and love to us. We thank you that Jesus is the true Lord and Savior. We thank you that he is coming again. May your Holy Spirit equip and empower us to live enduringly. We ask these things in the name of Jesus, your son. Amen.